To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This evening, I want us to talk about our heart. We looked previously this morning at uh, what it is false teachers do, the effects of the false teachers. But this, um, this evening, I want us to see the battleground of our heart. Our heart is the battleground for godliness. The Super Bowl was on earlier this week. don't know if anyone caught it. It's been a while since I watched it. I haven't watched it in a while. Um, but at least... 14 years ago, I used to, you know, at uni, I used to watch it regularly um, with my mates. We would, you know, would go down to the pub or wherever we're showing it, the varsity at the time in Leicester. Um, and we would start from about nine o'clock, um, watching the previews beforehand. And then, you know, the game starts really late because it's all the way in America, right? And so I used to enjoy the build up to the game. Um, never really took fancy with American football, but I enjoyed it. If, if you've watched um, American football, you'll notice that there's a time when they gather together, when they huddle, right? They huddle between segments of play, right? Sometimes it's extended. It's only meant to be 60 minutes, but sometimes with the adverts and stuff they show on TV, it's extended. The players use this time to gather together in a tight circle, and they share sensitive information. They strategize. How are we going to play the next round? How are we going to play next, right? Their plan is to advance, to gain advantage over the opponent. Now, there's hundreds of people, thousands, watching them. They're watching this game. So you can imagine for a second about 70,000 people watching these guys on the pitch. In between play, they huddle. Wouldn't it be absurd if all they did was just huddle? They just stayed within that huddle. It would look very strange. What fans really want to see is the impact of what's being said. They want to see the effects of that, the play that comes after the huddle. I wonder, in the same way, how is our gathering on a Sunday, having an impact on your families, on your work? How is your private devotion and study? How is your fellowship with other believers and your relationship with them? How is that building up the church? Those times, the world is looking for the impact, the church. It's looking for men, women, young and old, who stand for righteousness. The impact of our gathering, the impact of our devotion to God means something. A godly life must flow forth. The world is looking to the impact of our church huddles, our private devotions, how we sharpen one another. What impact is your growth in knowing Jesus having on living for Jesus in your home, in the church and the world at large? Are you growing 
in godliness. This morning we looked at how the false teachers were characterised by straying from doctrine, resulted in this constraint of believers' growth in sound doctrine. But then we concluded that false teachers must be silenced and those that have been diverted by false teaching must be rebuked so that they are sound in faith. We saw that Paul was addressing two groups of people. The false teachers in verse 10. For there are many, he says, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And verse 11 states, they must be silenced. Why? Because they are teaching for shameful gain. They are wrecking the church. The second group of people are Christians, the members of the local body. And having quoted the philosopher Epimenides and agreeing with the character reference of many of the Cretans, Paul writes in verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. Paul is telling these Christians that to not follow those who turn away from the truth. Paul wants Titus to rebuke Christians sharply, incisively, cuttingly for the purpose of repentance so that they may be separate from other Cretans. So when we get to this verse 15 and 16, Paul once again makes a distinction now, again, between two groups of people, those who are pure and those who are defiled. To the pure, he says, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their minds and consciences are defiled. The pure are Christians here. The defiled are unbelievers. Namely, but not limited to the false teachers. So the question then is, what makes one pure and another defiled? going to do something different let's deal first with the latter group the defiled and unbelieving what is the deciding factor here this scripture is telling us the heart is the deciding factor the human heart in its falling condition is evil and deceitful jeremiah 17 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it At the deepest level of man, our mind, our emotions, our desires are infected with sin. Jesus said in Mark 7, 21 to 23, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, Sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within and defile a person. That's the state of man. That's ground zero. That's that's how we're all born into this world. 
We are in desperate need of a spiritual, a new spiritual heart. So David writes in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Jesus says in John 3.7, You must be born again. You must have a new heart. You must be born again. The Lord declares in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 7, 27, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That means he will soften our heart, a new heart. That's not hardened. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Godly living. The blood of Jesus purifies us so that we're not just forgiven, but we are cleansed. We receive forgiveness through Christ, but he cleanses us also. God comes and removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, a clean slate. Even more still, Jesus credits our account with his righteousness. He pays for our sin and gives us the life that we could never live, a righteous life. He has paid for that. And so, We read in Titus 2.14 that Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness purifies for himself a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so we must, we owe Jesus our lives. If indeed we're following him. Our mind, our emotions, our desires, Like the hymn says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. But Jesus washed it white as snow. That's what Jesus does for us. Our state is that we're sinners. That we need a new heart. Jesus comes, accomplishes the work on the cross. Pays for our sins, cleanses us by giving us a new heart. And that first group, the pure. To the pure, all things are pure. Is he saying that for those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, everything becomes pure because you're in Christ? Is that what he's saying? This is not an excuse for Christians to succumb to sin in the name that I am already pure in Christ. That's not what he means. But rather what Paul is addressing Here, specifically, is the Jewish myths and human laws that had swayed some of these Christians. The Pharisees, as we said this morning, were very heavy on Old Testament ceremonial laws as a way of cleansing and saying that that's the way in which you are saved. These Christians were slowly being displaced from the true worship of God. Because they were adding rules and regulations to 
to their walk with Christ, their walk with the Lord. Regulations about food, regulations about activities. But Jesus says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So the pure are not pure because of what they eat, what they do. On the flip side, the, the defiled are not defiled by what they eat or the activities they necessarily undertake. Many unbelievers do wonderful things, we know this. To love, to care. But what is defiled is the heart. The heart that leads to defiled practice. See, there are some activities that are defiled and by nature, practicing them, the Bible says, defiles the body and the mind. And when a person's mind is pure, however, things of food and drink, what Paul is saying here, they become pure to them. It's, it's not a case of like what comes out, what comes into the body that defiles. What's going on in here? What's going in the heart? What's going on underneath your chest? The spiritual heart, not physical heart, but spiritual heart. See, food, drink, money, they're good gifts, we would agree. In and of themselves, they're good gifts. But when there is an overindulgence in them, is it the gift, the good gift that has gone wrong? Or is it the heart of the person that corrupts that gift? That's what Paul is saying. Some things that we have in our lives, we must be careful that we don't abuse the very good gifts that God has given to us. How is your heart this morning, this evening? How is your heart? Is it surrendered to Christ? What consumes your heart? What do you long for? Are you guarding what you allow into your mind? What governs your conscience? See, reading the Bible, praying, giving offerings, fasting, gathering together in service every week can become a legal, become legal, we can become legalistic with it. It can happen. It can happen where if we don't take care, it's just a tick box exercise. But legalism still did not produce godly folks in these churches in Crete. Legalism still produced liars, evil beasts, lazy, lazy gluttons. It doesn't not change minds and hearts. We can do those things. We can attend church. We can pray. We can read our Bible and still have issues with lust. Those who abstain from alcohol can still lash out in anger. We're not saved just because we attend a particular church. We're saved by the grace of God. We're saved by the grace of God. 
There is no sh- shortcut to godliness. We, we do not grow in godliness by following human myths and regulations and teachings. We not long ago went through this in Colossians with Pastor. Colossians 2, 20 to 23. If we, with Christ you died to the elemental spirit of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not t- taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping indulgence of the flesh. This is where all religions lie. All religions outside of Christ, self-made religion, rules and regulations that do not pertain to life and godliness. Human rules and commands have no value in restraining the indulgence of the flesh. Your rules and your methods for dealing with temptation and lust will not restrain the indulgence of the flesh. Your rules and ways of dealing with anger will not restrain this. Rules can become burdensome. They bring extra weight rather than life-giving. With human rules and regulations, people become self-righteous and judgmental when those rules are not followed as they want them to. Human traditions. What traditions are you building up in your homes? What rules are you setting for your children? What rules are you setting for yourself? Is it that they grow to know the Lord more and obey him Or is it more we want them to obey us? It's very important. When we follow human rules, discernment becomes difficult. We're trying to sift through the commands of the Bible, what's biblical, what's not. See, man-made standards creates inconsistencies within the church. The word must be central. The word must be central. That's what we must live for. So how did the works of the false teachers deny God in verse 16? Verse 16 reads, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These teachers openly and continually profess that they know God. But their actions and behaviours said otherwise. They had theoretical knowledge of God, but they did not truly know God. They may say that Jesus is my Lord, but their deeds revealed their unchanged heart. It revealed it. There is no saving faith at work in them. For if there was, it would have led them to strong convictions. It would have led them to holding firm to the word of God, to obey God's word. Their lives would have been changed, but instead, the Bible says they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good works. See, honouring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. 
A defiled life, void of godliness, is a life that denies the knowledge of God. Rebellion against God. They even misused the good gifts God gave. Limiting godliness to human traditions. So they could be legalistic in many areas of their life. But they were invariably inconsistent. I don't listen to secular music. But I like to have the occasional cigarette. In fact, some of the reformers did this. I'm not saying they're full teachers, but they had this issue. They had to wrestle with these things too. I attend four services on a Sunday. But Monday to Saturday, I neglect my family. I'm really careful about what I watch on TV. But I don't tame my tongue. The inconsistencies. They were detestable. They wanted to live for God on their own terms. Proclaiming God with their mouths, but denying with their lifestyle. They were rotten to the core. That's what it means to be detestable. Their mind and their conscience, they were bad fruit. They were a stench to God, an abomination before the Lord. Paul says they are disobedient. They were stubborn, stiff-necked. Their attitude of disbelief, unbelief, resulted in disobedience. This is true for the defiled mind. Defiled minds and conscience and unbelief of, we see in verse 15, is that the heart of the disobedience in verse 16. The denial and the rejection of Christ is the unwillingness to be persuaded that he is who he says he is. Unbelief leads to disobedience. So we're reminded in Hebrew chapter 3, 18 to 19. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Paul ends this verse saying they are unfit for any good work. What an indictment. They are unfit for any good work. There's, there's even anything that they could do is unfit. I don't know if, you, if you've been to Ikea recently or, or in the past, but I'm always reminded of seeing a chair in the chair, chair furniture section and there's a, a machine pressing down on the chair showing over a period of time that this chair is durable. It's under pressure. It's continuously tested. Why? To show you that it's fit for use, that you can sit down in this chair numbers of time and it will hold you up. In the same manner, these false teachers were tested by God and found to be unfit. Jeremiah 17, 10 says, I, the Lord, search the hearts and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of their deeds. They failed the test of God, the test of godliness. That which does not pass the test is useless. 
It's like metals with impurities. The divine refiner comes and discards those that are not fit for purpose, those who are unfit for the kingdom. Those who reject God become rejected. So nothing good results from their deeds because they remain in unbelief. This passage is teaching us how the ungodly live. Hearts that are defiled in mind and conscience will lead to the denial of the knowledge of the truth and disobedience to him. So we can compare verse 1 where with the ungodly, their knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Those who are pure, those who have new hearts, live to be godly people. And we compare that with verse 16, these false teachers. Those who live in unbelief, the way the ungodly deny him, they are un- incapable of godly works. See, a life of godliness authenticates a heart sound in the faith. What are we to take stock of in this passage this evening? What do we learn from what Paul is saying about the pure, the undefiled? Well, as Christians, we, we talk about holiness a lot. We know the scripture, be holy for I am holy. But we're reminded in First Peter that, we can, that it's, not, it's not just about the holiness. There's godliness involved also. And so can we define godliness when others ask what it is? Do we know what godliness is? Peter says in Second Peter 3 verse 11, Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved. What he was saying there is, Heaven, earth, the things you're chasing, these things will dissolve. There'll be a new creation. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth, because we've received new hearts. But these things here on earth are dissolving. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We must take time to be holy and godly. For in Christ, growth in godliness starts with pursuing God. See, feeding your mind with the word of God and seeing all things point to Christ, living for Christ, looking forward to his second coming will purify your mind. It sets your things on things that are above, not things that are here. We Christians have been perfected for all time by Jesus' sacrifice, but we need continuous sanctification and renewal of the mind by the washing through the word of God. Are you growing, as we said this morning, in delighting in God's word? If it's just an exercise to tick off, let's guard against legalism. Godliness, godliness is not that I must do, but knowing why. Why are you reading your word? Why are you coming to church? Why do you come with your parents? Why are you here this evening? It's knowing the why. So you grow in knowing because you know that God has loved you before time. He's loved you with an everlasting love. 
He has called you in times through the gospel. He's wooed your heart and drawn you from the world, giving you a new heart. Those are the why. So you trust in him because he does not lie. He, as promised, is faithful. He will surely bring it to completion. His character is trustworthy. He's dependable. His word is sound. You can test God's word and see that it's sound. His command is righteous. So you read his word because he is more than food and drink. He is more than those activities. He is more than life to you. So why would you not take this in, the word of God, and delight in it? Why do we refrain from it? Why do we struggle? Is godliness just our actions? Is it the things that we do alone? No. It's clear. It's clear that it's, it's the heart behind what we're doing, the reason why we do what we do. That's important. So we think of Enoch in Genesis. The, the Bible describes him in Genesis chapter 5, 21 to 24, as someone who walked with God. He walked with God. He dwelt in God's presence, enjoyed and delighted in God. But by the time we get to the New Testament in the Hall of Faith, as we call it, in Hebrews 11.5, the Bible says and describes him slightly different. Enoch pleased God. We walk with God and please God by what we do. It's, we don't work to please God. But we walk with him. We get to know him. We delight in him. And from that, a life of godliness and good works will flow. Enoch walked with God and his actions pleased God. He enjoyed his relationship with God and it therefore pleased him. Can we say that about our relationship with God? Or as church life becomes so busy that we have a relationship with church rather than relationship with God? Is it the relationship with the meetings or the relationship with God? What comes first? What influences the other? Our relationship, our love, our desire for God influences what we do, why we meet, why we gather, how we live in our families. It speaks of a devotion to God, to be devoted to God. It is more than our warm emotional feelings about God. It's not just that. It's not that I have read my Bible and pray today. How vitally and important that is. It's not just professing to know God. Devotion to God is a heart's attitude. Your disposition to the Lord. We must not presume that we can make others godly by regulating their lives with direct or indirect rules. The Bible is saying that further the faith of God's elect by presenting the truth, presenting the gospel, presenting God to others. So as you grow in knowing him, grow in obedience to him. As you grow in obedience, you'll be willing to share your faith. You'll be willing to share the truth with others. That's what leads to godliness in the church, in our families, 
in our surrounding, surroundings, with our children. Let us, let's take care of, of, of mixing traditions of man and mixing it with the inspired word of God. There are many things that are direct commands in the Bible. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Stay away from sin. Train yourself unto godliness, the Bible says. But there are other things that are, are wisdom calls. Those wisdom calls we must submit to God's word. So if a person loves watching TV, is it that the TV is bad or is it the heart of the person that can corrupt what they're watching or what they choose to watch? Is, is TV bad or is it that we love the TV more than we want to read the word of God? We place higher value in that, in passing away time. If someone loves playing games, is it the games that are impure or is it the heart? Because gifts, God gives good gifts and there are things that are creative in this world that God has given, but it's the heart that corrupts those gifts. Reading other books, sometimes including Christian books, do we love them more than reading God's word? Or are they drawing us to reading God's word even more and delighting in those things? Do we love simply attending church for the gathering, for the social aspect? Or do we enjoy knowing God, singing and praising and acknowledging and ascribing greatness to the living God? It's not that the TV and the video games and the reading the books and attending church are bad. But the major factor is the attitude. The heart is key. The heart is key. Is it becoming an addiction? Is it, are you putting it first before the Lord? Are you drawn to that very thing more than, you, than, you, than you're drawn to God? Are you submitting weaknesses to the Lord? Or are you falling for those weaknesses? In the case of the church, am I growing in attendance or am I growing in knowing God and pleasing him in how I live on a Sunday and during the week, at home, at work, how I serve others on the Lord's day and beyond? Church life may at times become busy, brothers and sisters, but you have to ask yourself, Am I growing in godliness? We can do so many things, but activity does not mean godliness. God is looking for hearts and minds that are surrendered to him. He's looking for faithful people in the heart. Sometimes you may not have the opportunity to serve in a local body, but sometimes we see the serving as just things that are seen, but you can encourage others because you want to see others being built up in Christ. You can share your home. You can welcome, you can do so many things that demonstrate a heart that's surrendered to God and be faithful with the truth of God that you know. That's what faithfulness is. That's what godliness is. It's not the activity, but the heart. The heart for the sake of God's elect. The heart that says that, I want to glorify 
God. Devotion to God leads to good works. See, when a person's heart is defiled, even their reading and understanding of God's word becomes defiled. You need a new heart. You can't just pick up the Bible and read it and apply it in so many The heart must be changed so that you know what God is saying. A defiled heart rationalises sin, excuses sin that is not that deep. We must deny ourselves, lest we deny God by our works. As we close, the late British pastor John Stott suggested three questions that Titus 1 poses as tests. He says you can apply this to, to any and every system. These are three questions you need to ask. In what you're doing, am I living in a godly way? These activities or what I'm being told to do? Number one, is its origin divine or human? Is it revelation or tradition? We've got to start there. Number two, is its essence inward or outward? Is it for show or really what I'm doing? Is it to build up others that actually, when someone comes to faith, you don't necessarily see all the outside immediately, but you're doing things that's encouraging and stirring up people and sharing the gospel and witnessing to their heart. So is, it, is its essence inward or outward or is it spiritual or a ritual? Something that we're doing as a ritual or is it spiritual? Number three, is its result a transformed life or merely formal creed? Is it a transformed life? Does it lead to eternity? Does it lead and push others and stir them up to love the Lord more? Does it, are you stirred up? to witness and see and live your life for the eternity that's ahead? Or is it just merely formal creed? True religion is divine in its origin. True religion is spiritual in its essence and it's moral in its effect. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That is our Jesus. Growing in Christ's likeness is the key. As you walk with the Lord, the Bible says that he will cause your ways to please him. You will grow closer to him. Even the times when it's so difficult, when it's challenging, there's things in our lives that are so draining. The Lord is with us. Walk with him. Rest in his green pastures. Rest in his bosom. When you are weak, when you are weary, run to the Lord. The righteous run to his sanctuary. They run to his refuge. They are safe there. We do not need to run to anywhere else. 
when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still, only if we would trust and obey. The trust and obey comes as we walk with the Lord. He gives us the strength. May the Lord help us to be pure in mind and godly, enabled in our conscience to flee sin and to distinguish between commands of God and of man and live a life devoted to God in word and in deed. Amen.